You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit SojournMontrose.com. So when I was in college, um, it was final season, I, I guess my sophomore year, and I went to UT in Austin, and at, at UT, there's this before finals and after classes, there are some dead days. And, and in those dead days where you don't have class, students are expected to camp out in the library and study all the time and, and prepare for their finals. And because I was such a responsible student, I did that for a little while in the morning. And then I went to a concert in the evening. <laughs> and then I got home from the concert. And as is the custom of college students, I checked my Facebook. And on my Facebook, I had a message from an old friend in high school who I hadn't talked to really since I graduated, and it just simply said, call me. And he left his phone number. And when I called him, he informed me that one of our mutual best friends had suddenly passed away. And, and I, my world was rocked, and I was shook up, and it was surprising, and it was painful. And I remember going to my friend's funeral and walking down the aisle and looking over the casket at my friend. And I remember feeling so small and so weak, and I felt so insignificant, and moreover, I felt nauseous. And I think the reason that I had that response is because for the first time in my life, although that wasn't the first time that I had experienced death, it was the first time the finality and the hopelessness and the helplessness of death hit me. There was nothing that I could have done or said in that moment to make my friend's mouth speak words. There was nothing that I could have done or said in that moment to make his heart pump blood or his brain produce thoughts. He was dead and it was final and I was heartbroken. He wasn't sick in need of remedy. He wasn't injured in need of bandage and he wasn't asleep in need of a good shaking. He was dead. And in this moment, the realization of how powerful a state death is hit me. Because death, more than any other human condition, has the ability to hold us in its grips. One that is dead can only do one thing, and and that is to be dead continually. There's no way that a dead person can even cry out for help. And this understanding of death it is sobering, and it can feel hopeless, and it can feel helpless, but it is absolutely necessary to understanding the good news of the gospel. We have to understand the reality and the, the sobering truth of death as something that is final and something that we have no power over to understand the good news of the gospel. And so we're going to move into Ephesians 2, and we're going to start in verses 1 through 3. And really, through the first portion of of our talk here this morning, uh, there's going to be a lot of bad news. But take heart, good news is coming. Starting in verse 1, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived 
and the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Here Paul addresses the Christians in Ephesus as those who were formerly dead. Obviously, he does not mean this in a physical sense. Every Christian in Ephesus had not at one time been dead and raised to life as Jesus was or even Jesus' friend Lazarus. But, but Paul is still talking about a very real death that they had experienced, and that is the spiritual death. Paul is saying that people before encountering Christ and salvation have a dead spirit. We as Christians were once wandering around, living in sin and trespass in a way that is like that of a dead person. We had only one ability, to sin and to sin continually. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not suggesting that one who is apart from Christ cannot in a given moment do something that is good. Anyone can be charitable for an instance. But what this spiritual death means is that we as humans are unable to consistently and selflessly do good things to the glory of God in a perfectly righteous way on our own. The spiritual death means that we are unable of our own accord to do what is good with consistency in such a way that God would be pleased with us. We cannot achieve right standing with God based upon our merit because our hearts and minds are naturally bent towards sin bit towards selfishness and towards the desires of the flesh. And this church is the very essence of being dead. We were hopeless from the start. We were lying in our spiritual coffins, prepared to be there for all of eternity. And this is something that's been true since the sin of Adam in the garden. And so we're going to go to Romans 5 as Paul explains more of what Adam's sin in the garden and how that affects our station as those who either are or were formerly dead. Starting in verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin was indeed in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Because of Adam's transgression in the garden, all of creation has experienced a very real death, a separation from God, and a bent towards sin. This is not to say that we can blame our sin and our disobedience on Adam, for we're still responsible for our actions. However, because of the sacrifice Adam made in the garden, really on our behalf, to trade the truth about God and the unity of God and the worship of God for worship of self, we experience this curse of sin and death. And none of us are excluded. We inherit this from Adam. Moreover, before salvation, Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we were children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And this is also far from exciting news, the language to be a child of wrath. As dead people, those who are not in Christ are unable to help themselves and are therefore destined for punishment. 
They cannot will themselves to live. They cannot will themselves to resist sinful desires with any success. And moreover, they can't even cry out for help to do so. And so the question is, where is the good news in this sobering truth? That that we as humans all experience this common thread of being born into a spiritual death and completely unable to change our station. So look at me, look with me at Ephesians 2 verse 4. But God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, Christian, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, but it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no no man may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The first two words of this chunk of scripture are maybe my favorite two words in all of the Bible, excluding maybe empty tomb. But God, but God, in light of all of the bad news and really the condemnation of being unable to change our station of being dead, we have two words that drastically change the situation, and those are but God. The text goes on to explain that even in our sin, our death, our filth, and our trespass, God had love, God had mercy, and he had grace for us. This is the core of the gospel message. We were dead, so Christ died that we might live in a resurrection like his. For those of us that have faith in Christ as Lord, we have been made alive together with Christ. He experienced the weight of our death and the wrath that we were born into so that we might experience life and relationship with the triune God of the universe in the way that he has. Verse 4 refers to the great love with which he loved us. And and I, I love that it says loved, which is a past tense, and it's an aorist past tense, meaning it points to a specific event. It doesn't... point to something that has continually been true, but it points to a specific time. And that time is is the incarnation, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. There was a specific period of time in all of creation when God loved us specifically in a way that is um, more obvious than the ways that he has loved us and, and more beneficial and more transformative. God loved us when he sent when God the Father sent God the Son into the womb of a woman, forsaking his heavenly home. God loved us as he experienced humanity in its fullness, including the full range of emotions, temptations, growing pains, breastfeeding, and the awkward stages of puberty. God loved us as he, in the person of Jesus, was perfectly obedient to the law as a man 
forsaking desires of the body and the mind and submitting to the fullness of what God the Father had commanded. God loved us as he experienced the death that Adam brought into the world through the physical death of Roman crucifixion, through the spiritual death of becoming an object of wrath on the cross for our sin, being most clearly expressed as Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And showing that the job was done as he cried, it is finished. Meaning that for those who are in Christ, there is not one more measure of wrath that God has towards you in your sin. And he died in the existential death of being in a grave for three days. Lifeless, breathless, motionless, and in the dressings of a corpse. And so we have experienced this death. Both we will experience it in the physical and we have experienced it in the spiritual. And Jesus has experienced it as well. And if we are those who are dead, unable to change our station in any amount of trying or gritting our teeth or any amount of elbow grease, we must need someone who is powerful over death. We must need an outside source powerful over death. And so Jesus died the death that Adam brought into the world, but that was not the end. Then he rose from the dead. He showed himself to be powerful over the one area of human life that we cannot even pretend to be powerful over. We can't even kid ourselves that we might have power over death. Yet he was truly dead as a human being, and even so, he was not without the ability to act. He did not need to cry out for help. He did not need someone to come and raise him. But by the power of his own spirit, God the Son rose from a very real death and restored what Adam had broken for all who would believe. Hear the, hear the words from verse 15, starting in verse 15 of Romans 5, continuing what we were reading earlier. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, Adam's, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and to life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In Christ, everything that Adam laid to waste in his disobedience and everything that we have subsequently experienced as a curse 
has and will be restored. This is why verse 6 of Ephesians 2 is so profound when talking about the saving work of Jesus. It says, And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In Jesus experiencing death and resurrection in a physical and spiritual sense, he has the power to raise us from both our spiritual and our physical deaths. In Christ, believers currently experience a life in the Spirit rather than death and sin. And in Christ, we will one day experience a bodily resurrection from the dead when he, fully, when he returns to fully restore the creation he began restoring in his life. The death of Adam no longer has hold on you if you are in Christ this morning. You are now counted as those who were formerly dead, but currently in life. And even though it's clear when we think about this good news, that this is something that we could not have done, that this must be an amazing work of God, we all too often try to take credit for it. We use language like, I gave my life to Jesus, when in reality, we had no life to give him. Rather, he gave us life when we were dead. He gave us forgiveness when we were condemned. He gave us faith when all we had was sin and trespass. He gave us the spirit of truth when all we knew was a lie. Verse 8 says that the work of salvation in the believer is the gift of God, not a result of works. If you are a Christian, you are saved, alive, and forgiven because of God's mercy, love, and grace. This salvation is not because of your spirituality it's not because of your choice, and it's not because you logically worked through thinking about what it might look like to follow Jesus in your particular life stage. Believer, all that you knew before Christ was sin and trespass, and you were dead in it. The glorious truth of the gospel is that we did not do this work. It's that we did not save ourselves. The glorious truth of grace is that we were incapable of producing faith. We were incapable of making ourselves alive in relationship with the God of the universe, but God. But God intervened and raised our dead souls into souls that are alive with Christ in both worship and in obedience. For you, Christian, this is the good news. This is grace. The amazing grace of God and salvation is that we have been made alive and gifted with a faith in Christ that we were unable to conjure up on our own or earn based upon our merits of morality, our spirituality, or our intellect. And this should stir our hearts to worship. And it should stir us to surrender ourselves fully to the glorious and gracious God that has given us hope. And it should stir us to share it with others that they might understand and believe the life-giving truth about Jesus. We cannot of ourselves in ministry raise the dead souls around us to life. But we can, however, offer love, service, and words that are life-giving and that God can use to waken the dead souls around us to life and to give flesh to dry bones. God saved a people for his own possession, as Paul said, in so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches 
of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God will make his goodness known through his church. That is the promise of the scriptures, is that through us and the grace that we have been shown in Christ, he will make that grace known to many more. And this is, this is really exciting because it means that we get to take part in the restoration of creation that Jesus began and that he will finish. We now have the ability to be selfless when we deny as dead people. We now have the ability to be obedient, charitable, and to offer worship to the God of the universe rather than to offer worship to ourselves. This is not something that we formerly had the freedom to do. And as we do so, God will show the immeasurable riches of his grace and mercy through us. And as he does that, people will be made alive in Christ. But for some of you in here, you would not consider yourself among the camp of those that we would call believers. You would not consider yourself one who has been made alive in Christ. And in fact, the majority of today, you've probably been sitting and thinking, this is really rough news. And if I am dead, what is it that I could even do? If I am dead spiritually, what is it that I could even do? And, and to you, I would encourage you to beg the God of the universe for the faith that brings life. Yeah. I would encourage you to surround yourself with the people of God, that they might show you the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. And I would encourage you and, and pray and be desperate that you would have ears to hear that God loves you and desires for you to be made alive in Christ. And he does not only love a future, better, more morally upright version of you. He loves you now, even in your death, even in your sin. And only he has the power to create a future, better version of you. Yeah. Would you trust in the God that brings life? Would you trust in the only person who has ever lived that has power over death? Because the truth is, is that we will all experience death. For the believer, however, it is temporary, and we truly experience life eternally. Would you, would you trust in the God that offers that? There is no life. There is no hope. And there is no joy to be found outside of relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And, and so that is the encouragement both for the believer and for the non-believer. But what about for us as a church? What about for us as a church family? As a church, we need to be established in this grace that we've been given. We need to fully understand the unmerited gift we've been given in life through Jesus. We need to recognize that God acted when we could not. This grace of God that saves is our only hope, so we must be rooted in it to the very depths of our identity. Let us walk in reminding one another that when we were dead, God made us alive in Christ. Let us remind us each other of that daily. Because being established by grace will lend to us walking in the good works that we were prepared for, that have been prepared for us and that we were saved for, as, as verse 10 says. God did not give us grace without purpose. God did not save us without purpose. Verse 10 tells us that, when, that we were saved for good works. We were saved for speaking, acting, and serving in such a way that the glorious God of the universe is made known in all that we do. 
We were not saved that we would be made much of, but that rather that God would be made much of through us. As we walk in these good works, brothers and sisters, we can take heart that they've been prepared beforehand before us. As we walk in these good works, we will see that as God's people, we will take part in the restoration of creation. This is the restoration that Jesus began in his life and that he will complete in the fullness of time. But in this age, we get to take part in it. In this age, we get to work towards the end that God will bring others from current death in sin to former death and current life in Christ. We get to work towards the brokenness of our communities being restored through our hospitality, through our love, and ultimately through us as a people interpreting and sharing the good news of grace to the world around us. This is not a call for us as a church to call the world around us to the moral standards that we have been made alive to walk in that they have not yet been made alive to walk in. Rather, this is a call for us as a church into good works so that the dead world around us would experience the gospel of grace in a real and tangible way so that they might believe and experience life in full. Church, we were saved by grace, but we were also saved for grace. Let us be a people established and marked by it. Let's pray.